the church uh, the title is when the crowd becomes a church when the crowd becomes a church and this whole topic about uh, community and becoming community and and our church folks if you're not if you're new here i have been there's been threads of this through many sermons and been talking about us being more than just passing each other in the 15 minutes before and after service that we can't be a church that way I contacted Pastor Brian through email and asking permission to use because I, I didn't really want to change much to his message. Message It was pretty much when I heard that is everything that had been beating in my heart. And uh, he uh, very uh, comically emailed me back and said, that's okay, I borrowed it from somebody else and gave me the trail, <laughs> you know. And so uh, this, is, this has been something. And, and when he started mentioning some of the names, uh, some I wasn't familiar with, or, or actually he didn't mention names, but when I started trying to track this down, uh, kind of origins, I started hearing threads of it in ministers I didn't even know before, but have come now to really appreciate their preaching. Um, this particular pastor that, that caught Brian's attention first on this topic was Larry Osborne, the pastor of North Coast Community Church in San Diego. Uh, it stirred his heart more than anything else around this concept of community. And as I listened to Brother Larry's message too uh, in preparation, it, it grabbed me too. But let me tell you, when we say community and we're talking about community, we're not talking about our neighborhoods. And we're not talking about um, places where we live or our communities. When we use the word community in reference to, to the church. But rather we're talking about meaningful building of relationships. About real, spiritually uh, formidable uh, relationships that have built, been built through the teachings of the word of God. And how he says relationships should be built. There's all kinds of organizations that are trying to build uh, community and build relationships. But many of them fail in many ways or ha have a lot of um, uh, problems in that because it's not God's way of doing it. In one of Larry's podcasts, he tells a story where when he talked about community, um, he was talking about deep connections, about meaningful relationships, real friendship, spiritually uh, formational relationships. And, you know, it's really neat how this worked because this week was Bikes, Blues, and Barbecue. And I'm, I'm part of the Bonsley's Motorcycle Club. I want to welcome, uh, we call him Boo over here on the end, Boo, wave, and Moses over here. Or he doesn't like the other names, Sluggo, uh, he's beginning. And, of course, our own, you know, Barty and Travis and, and Kevin that plays drums. Um, I don't know if Dennis is here this morning. Maybe he's coming second service. He's back there. So um, we have all but one of our guys here, but... A bunch of the biker community and the motorcycle clubs, this whole thing, community, they call brotherhood. It's really the whole goal is about having such a deep relationship with each other, such a trust and, and deep founded relationship that you can trust them more than anybody else. Now, in the non-Christian clubs, it, it comes club before even family or anything else, you know, which, which is not what we, we believe. We know God has put our family in our care first before anything else, even before the church. Well, this brother Larry, he told a story where how um, intentionally developing community at North Coast was key for this congregation moved from 180 people to over 9,000 in just a matter of years through this deep focus on community, about connecting people and helping them understand that the relationships had to deepen and that that's what the gospel's about. It's about Christ dying for our sins but so that we would all be together for eternity and it doesn't have to wait and start when we get to heaven. And just like I was saying when we got started, I mean, some people come into worship service thinking they got to wait till they get to heaven before they cut loose, right? Well, then there's no sin, so nobody can actually be sinful and, and stare at me or make fun of me for dancing around, so I'll wait till then. That's not the way it should be. Get your practice now. I mean, 
the thing is, is that for a church to move from 180 to 9,000 people, there are some who have been churched in here that right now in your mind, you're fighting it, but what you're saying is, it's not all about numbers, Pastor. Well, I bet you a lot of that's just people going from other churches. There might be. Maybe their churches were very unhealthy. Maybe there's other reasons. I don't, you know, but I know one thing that it's not just that church. As I begin to look, there was other churches, same thing. As I begin to focus on community and, and building relationships. You know, some would do it through small groups or other ways, but, but connecting people. In a church of 9,000, are you going to know all 9,000 people? No, there is no way you're going to have a deep relationship with all. But the church has to be a network of communities in that case. And even when we read in the scripture, it talks about, and they added 3,000 to their numbers that day, or they added 5,000 to their numbers that day. Do you think that they all, you know, all they did is hand out visitors cards, you know, and they all filled them out, and they had a record of them, and okay, now everybody go on their way. If they were going to sustain those numbers, there had to be deep, deepening relationships because people were coming broken looking for that, and Jesus offered the, the best relationship possible, one who would even die for their sins and forgive them for their sins and make eternity possible, and they were hungry for that. There's loneliness and brokenness in those who, who have uh, been separated from Christ. It's natural because sin is all about singling you out and then destroying you methodically. So their, their relationships in this church and in the New Testament, it, it wasn't the preaching, although preaching is biblical and it's necessary. It's how you get the word out. But not just the programs, uh, but their relationships. Their relationships became the primary way that believers were discipled and the primary way that those outside the church were brought into relationship with Christ. So not through preaching, not through programs. They were important. But the primary way believers were brought into the fold and non-believers received Christ was through spiritually formational relationships. And this is a good opportunity for me to, to uh, remind us of something that we didn't get in the announcements, not Ken's fault, mine, but Isaac. Isaac, you know, I told you I don't like to single you out. But we're having, I want everybody who can, we're having a special prayer time for Isaac tomorrow, uh, tomorrow evening at church from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Gives you time to get home and get dinner. Um, Isaac has been very open about his situation, so Isaac, I hope I can share so they know what we're praying about. But Isaac got saved in county jail through Mickey, who was already saved when he went to county jail. And the day Mickey, or Isaac got out, he comes here, and Isaac had been pretty much attached to each other <laughs> ever since, other than when he finally, God blessed him with a Christian boss, a, a job. You know, he's working in trying to get consistent with that. And he goes to meet with a public defender last week, and drops a bomb that what he thought he might have to go back and serve just a little bit of time in county because things were kind of rolling, tells him that they're shooting, that the, the prosecuting attorney is shooting for 12 to 30 years in prison. They're trying to put some things on him that Isaac says before the Lord he didn't do. But because he had other things that he admits he does, they're trying to roll it together. And without getting too much into details, we're going to pray and intercede for Isaac because he has been doing everything methodically, trying to get his life on track and follow the Lord and do everything he can to follow the scripture. And how many knows that the legal system, they don't necessarily give it much uh, authority to that, right? But I told him, I'm not, I wanted to speak on Mickey's behalf. The attorney didn't give us a chance. I said, we're not, we're not letting him tell us this time. Any way possible, we're going to speak on Isaac's behalf and make sure that they know that we believe in him and we know that, that Jesus has changed his life. 
those things, preaching and the teaching, that's all important, but it was the relationships. And many times I see the churches growing and I see people saved in our church not because of pastor's great sermon. They've already been worked on by the time they get here, right? Someone's been uh, living their life in front of them. Uh, Danny Neighbors is out on the road now a lot, but when he was here and uh, working around Simmons, you know, he, guys would come here and, and even a, a couple of ladies said, that guy's always beaming with joy. I had to just come and see what, where he's getting it from. And I said, well, he's not getting it from the church. He's getting it from the Lord. We just come here to be re-strengthened. But, but Danny always has a smile on his face, and that caught people's curiosity in a world that's broken and, and depressing. How can you be smiling all the time with the way things are? Working this job, doing this and that. So it's those relationships. And I, along with Pastor Brian, felt there was something different in this message that stirred his heart and it stirred mine. Something about uh, Brother Larry's message that, that resonates with where we are about to head as a church. Now, you've got to keep in mind, Pastor Brian, I think there are about 1,500 people. They just built the building. They've got like three services. Uh, it's a bigger church. But no matter uh, what the size, you still have to have community happening in the church for it to progress healthily. And this teaching is more relevant to New Song than ever before with us heading into possible building projects. As we grow as a church and continue to become a great growing church, how do we make sure we don't just become a crowd and be sure we become a church? For 1,900 years, from the time of Jesus, from the time the New Testament church started, when Jesus ascended and, and the believers received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they went out and, and the churches began and Paul began going around to keep the churches going from that time all the way up to the early 19, to the 1900s, to the turn of the 1900s, um, they went to church with people they knew very well. Monday through Saturday, they went to church because there was no mobility, no mobility in the culture. In other words, they didn't move, go very far. They went; everything was in pro, close proximity, and so you're going to church with a smaller group of people, and you knew them intimately. You knew everything about them. From the time of Jesus, when there was house churches, and all the way up to the landscape. Uh, that we have seen in rural America littered with rural churches. All over America in small towns, there was, there was no mobility. And without the ability to have mobility, people lived in smaller towns, and they rarely traveled to other towns, so everybody knew everybody's business. That's not always good, right? Everybody's in everybody's business sometimes. You watch uh, Andy Griffith, right? Anybody watch Andy Griffith before? And, and I can't remember her name, but Aunt B's friend, right? Uh, Claire or something, I can't remember. But she was always in everybody's business, wasn't she? And, uh, but there was no ability to project an image. How many, when you're, if you're in school or you've been in school and you change schools, you're thinking, okay, fresh start. All the things I didn't, that people didn't like about me there, I'm going I'm to change that. I, I, I got two days. I'm going to change myself enough so I'll be popular at this school. And, and you put on a front for a little bit, but it doesn't last very long, right? As people get to know you, uh, things slip out, and next thing you know, you're the same person that you were at the other school, right? No ability to pretend. And people live with the real you in the small town. And the churches were small because no one could drive from far away. And this was incredibly different from the environment in which we go to church today. When we go to church, we don't know everything about everyone who goes to church with us. We may go with one family member or, or uh, immediate family or a friend, but believe it or not, that one little fact, that seemingly insignificant fact about the way we went to church back then and the way we do now has changed everything about church. Now you're saying, Pastor CJ, when I drove up, 
Uh, you're talking like this is a big church, and I obviously saw a sm small church. Let me tell you, by our numbers, we're actually a big church in a little building. I don't know if I should repeat this quote, but you know Chris Farley, big man in a little coat. <laughs> I mean, we're running between 100. And I think the count recently was there's 118. Uh, we might have hit 120 by, by the looks of things a few Sundays um, in a 3,900-square-foot building. And 33% of those are kids that are in kids' church. If you come on Wednesday nights and we sat everybody shoulder to shoulder in here, literally when we dismiss kids to go back, half the congregation leaves. It's like a toss-up whether I should dismiss adults to go back for their little class and keep the kids in here or send the kids back. I mean, they've got, they get a few more kids and they got the majority vote. But this was an incredibly different environment from what we see today, from which uh, church today. When we go to church, we don't know everything about everyone who goes to church with us. We might go with one family member, but we don't know them intimately, every single person. Think about it for the people who greet at the front door. If you've ever greeted at the front door here, right? When someone walks in our church and someone greets them at the door, they say, how are you doing? That's usually the easiest thing to say, right? And what's our response? I'm fine. And my kids could have set the house on fire that morning. Um, I, I could be having uh, a bad time financially, and my house is in foreclosure. I mean, my wife and I could be on the edge of divorce, and my answer will probably still be, I'm fine. And that doesn't go for just believers. That's just culturally the way we do it, right? No, I understand this. Don't get me wrong. I'm not picking at that. I understand why we do this, because in our society, when you ask how someone's doing, you're not really asking how they're doing. They're just, you're just saying, I see you. I see that you exist. That's all you're saying when you say, how are you? You're not really asking for an answer. And those who really give you the real answer, generally you treat them like they're socially awkward. Like, wow, I'm not going to ask them again. But you asked, didn't you? You asked, how are you? They tell you, and you're like, good grief. I need to take an aspirin after that. I mean, we're really saying, I see you're sucking air there, so I acknowledge that you exist. But we don't want to say what we're really trying to say, do we? When we say how we're doing, which is our learned response, fine. But somewhere in our lives, we have to have those meaningful relationships that when we say, how are you, they don't mean, I see you. They're really genuinely interested in how we're doing. We need those relationships where, where when they ask us how we are and we say we're fine, but we're not fine, their response is baloney. I know you baloney. You're not fine. I always think back to a time a guy I went to Bible school with and we were both going to the same church. And he was a little younger than I and, and a young married guy involved in ministry. And I remember in this church was 9,000 people, Okay. And it was James River Assembly, it was about 9,000 people. And it was after service, a big open sanctuary, and I just see him tracking in between, and he's smiling. And the Holy Spirit said, There's not, he's, he's torn up. And in natural, it's like, no, he's not Holy Spirit, he's smiling. But I knew something was right. I approached him and said, hey, what's going on? And I, oh, I'm okay. And I said, no, you're not. And we sat down, and come find out his wife had just left him for the third time. He went through a horrible situation. What's going on in the church today? The church in America where that stuff doesn't go any longer. Where, where the church is more a crowd that fosters more surface relationships than meaningful ones. More distant relationships 
than real genuine community. Now I could mention a lot of things today because our, our relational issues are not church issues, really. What I'm talking about is not the church issues. Our relational issues are social issues. And, you have, and they have bled their way into the church, so now we're dealing with them. I mean, our culture, we're too busy. We don't have time to make deep connections anymore. We, we value time and money more than we value relationships. I got to tell you something a little funny. You know, we're also exploring starting a Hispanic uh, church, uh, Spanish-speaking work out of this church uh, before we even build. Uh, it might be a little crazy, a lot of irons of fire, but, but the opportunity presented, and, and the pastor of a church is about 500 uh, people. They're wanting to plant. They have their own three-year Bible school. They're part of our same organization. It's a very good fit. Um, we're just trying to work out the details. But I have not been connected. I used to actually attend that church some. That church started in the back of my dad's church when he pastored, and it's grown immensely. But I've kind of forgotten about some cultural things, like appointment times. Like for me growing up, if you say you're going to be somewhere 1.30, that means 1.30 for me. In other cultures, that means somewhere between 1.30 and 2.30, or 1.30 and 2, or something to whatever, but, but you know what the reason is? We can pick at that, but it's, it's not something to pick at because it's just cultural. We've been raised to think one way, and it comes down to what we value. You see, we have been taught that, that time is money, and if you take away my time, you're basically stealing my money because time's valuable. In other cultures, relationships are more valuable because some cultures, there's not a lot of money. So the very valuable resource they have is time is invested in meaningful relationships. And so they might be late to that meeting because someone who is very important in their life needed some time and they spent a little time in that. And whatever business deal you're working out is really insignificant in the grand scheme of things. And so you're all wound up tight because they're disrespecting you and your time. But in all reality, they're probably handling things a little better than you are because they didn't just breeze out from their family that morning. They didn't just pass by their friends because they got a schedule to keep. They're investing in meaningful relationships. You know, in other cultures, buses don't run on time, always. You know, airplanes don't run on time. Um, people show up uh, on time for appointments or meetings sometimes. And it may make some people mad, but you just got to understand, I'm not picking at you. This isn't about right and wrong here. This isn't part of the message where I'm telling you they're right and we're wrong. I'm simply telling you that it's culturally different. And you get mad because that time is money. You have to realize they have a bigger value on the relationships. You know, social media has made our relationship surface a uh, very surface as well. And you guys know I'm on Facebook a lot. So you can say, Pastor, you're, you're, you can call him the kettle black there, buddy. You're on Facebook as much as any of us. Yes. And I recognize sometimes that it takes time away that it shouldn't. It, it pulls anybody in, even your pastor. And you have to be very careful because if most of your relationship time is through social media, I can already tell you most of your relationships are on the very surface. Oh, but we spend so much time on private message back and forth. Well, there's a reason when I was at Walmart corporate office, my mentor said, hey, if you have to handle something negative, don't do it in writing because it can be read so many different ways. Do it in person because facial expressions, tone, everything plays into the way you convey your message. And if it's negative, it can turn nasty. You're better off handling it in person or face-to-face, -face, or over the, at the very least over the phone so they can hear the inflection of your voice. It has allowed us, the social media frenzy, to become cowardly in our relationships. And here's where I might step on some toes, so hopefully you wore steel toe today. Because as long as we're hiding behind that comu computer screen or a phone, 
We can be harsh, we can whine, we can complain, we can gossip, we can tear up somebody's character on a blog, and we can do it boldly because we're hiding behind a screen and a keyboard. And as a coward, we are saying things we would never say to the person face-to-face in that conversation. We are too scared to do that, but it's easy to hide behind the keyboard and let it go, or an email, or whatever. And sometimes it's, it's funny to me how we think we're hiding our message. You know, we want to put the jab out there. We want everybody else to agree with us. And we know that person might see it, but we just don't call them out, right? We take the cowardly approach. Some people. You know, it's funny. Anytime you see that, you should just look through the Facebook friends. And just look. Look for the one that doesn't respond. Or at least doesn't respond favorably. Some people. What was that about when you're pointing the finger? You got so many pointing back to you? I, I would like to tell Christians, you can get the message of the gospel across without pointing the finger and just saying this is what we should all do or this is what i believe for myself this is what i should follow and let them watch you follow but when you're accusatory you're lining up with satan and just helping him because he is the accuser of the brethren and he is accuser of the people if you just become an accuser people shut you out they're not going to listen to you you're going to be a clanging gong a resounding symbol they won't want to hear it and they'll just shut you out they hear in your heart that you're just pointing 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 they don't want any of that and I'm not preaching here about a soft doctrine of, of uh, seeker-friendly and don't call sin, sin. You know, we go, you go there with it. You know that's not what I'm saying. If you're really hearing my heart, what I'm saying is, you know when you're hiding behind the keyboard and you're trying to get out of frustration and you're using the gospel to do it, how it's going to come out. This social media is providing an opportunity to have surface-level relationships and cowardly hide behind one of those devices like the phone or the iPad or the computer or whatever it is. And all of these things are part of a bigger conversation about culture and church. There are our church's relational problems now, too. But what I'm going to mention next will uh, frame our conversation for today. So you don't have to worry. This isn't about social media all day. But you might scratch your head a little about what I'm about to bring up because you can see how the social media and the phones and all that we know because of statistics, how that's kind of pulling us away and making things difficult in the church culture. But here's the thing that's also difficult. It's a little thing or a big thing called the automobile. What? Yes. You're saying now, pastor, social media, that makes sense. But the automobile, I mean, that was invented a long time ago, back when things were good and kids weren't brats and all that stuff. And everything was rosy and the sun came out every day and it never rained, right? No. Let me tell you, I want to take you on a cultural journey for just a few moments and show you how the invention of the automobile and the accessibility to the automobile shifted our culture, our economy, our life, our churches today more than you'll ever know. A couple of generations ago, it would have been common for a family to just be a one-car family. The father took the car to work during the day, right? And this isn't a chauvinist statement. This is just factual about statistics, but the wife generally would stay home when a lot of women working at one, at one point. And that was a one-car family. And when the husband got home, the wife went to the store or whatever she needed the car for. Or they took the kids out. But there was a one-car family. And then we had a cultural shift where, where a couple generations later, um, women began to work outside the house. And when that happened, there became a need for two cars, two people working. To keep up with that, that income, you needed two, two cars. And so... Uh, it became a two-car family, and they became busier and harder to get time together. And then there was a point in more recent history 
when if you went back, and I could probably ask my dad or a few others, they remember, at a certain time, if you were a 16-year-old and you got a car, you were a spoiled brat. Considered that, thought of that probably by the old-timers then. No 16-year-old needs a car of their own. What is that parent thing of spoiling their kid like that? See, we laugh now, but that was a true, heartfelt feeling. And, you know, we can laugh at it, but we obviously know that generations today, we've seen a progression of things getting bad. We have to think there is a cause. We sure don't want to vilify the automobile. We love that. I mean, we love that thing, right? And it's not about vilifying the automobile. I'm not here to preach to you that cars are sinful and you're all walking home today because you're going to have to put your car, turn it over to the church, all right? But, but it's very common at one point. Middle-class families begin to scratch and claw and do everything they could to get a 16-year-old car because they need some relief, right? I mean, they've been running a shuttle service for 16 years. And the first sign of, of that they can legally put their kid uh, behind the wheel of a car, uh, they hand them keys and say, help us. Help us not, help us help you. It's not so much a spoiled thing as it used to be because we need the help in our lives and so we give them a car or we help them get a car or we make them go to work so they can buy a car because we need help with our shuttle service right all of our sports programs were predominantly baseball football and basketball at one time and those sports were taking place during the school day there was a lot of time where they had practice right games may not have been during school but they would practice during school and as things shifted, there's different activities. Activities change. People's interests change. And now they're playing uh, club soccer, which I'm not a big sports fan, but look at this club soccer, select baseball, traveling football and hockey. I mean, kids are traveling all over in high school, junior high, to play sports. That didn't used to happen as much. And doing everything else and nothing happens during the school hours anymore. It's all extracurricular activities outside of classroom time the world has changed the demands on our free time have increased and the increased mobility has made these cultural shifts possible you see we used to have to go to the closest church we used to have to shop at the closest store and everything had to be nearby but once the automobile was everywhere and accessible we no longer had to go to the closest store we had had the choice of going to the better one and i mean when cars when you get a car and you're liking driving it's you know, you need an excuse to go a little longer, right? When gas was 50 cents a gallon. Hey, I think I'll go to the neighborhood market in California. They didn't have them back then, you know? And go across country for 15, 20 bucks. I mean, you know, things have changed. We started driving past the mom and pop stores uh, to the big box stores because the big box store had more items to choose from. And many times they had the same item with cheaper pricing and the same phenomenon that created the big box store created this thing we call big churches or mega churches. And when I say big church, most of you will think in your mind and your mind will gravitate to like Cross Church or, or CLC or, or T.D. Jakes and Potter's House if you're a TV preacher watcher, you know? That's what you think of when you think of big church or mega church. And some of you come from a history of a smaller church. So you may look down the street at reach church and say that's a big church or maybe you came from a church of 10 to 20 to 30 and so new song at 110 120 people seems big to you but you have to understand when i refer to a big church i'm referring to a church of 300 or more people 
Because in historic patterns during the day of small towns and low mobility or no mobility, if a church was 300 or more, it was massive. That was a massive church. And now we look at uh, a church of 200 to 300 people, and that's a small church. And that's not true, especially if you're talking about social dynamics. If you're talking about spiritually formational relationships. Because when a church reaches two or to 300 people, it's already too big to function as a community without some intentionality. We're already crossing that bridge. I, I could feel it. It was like now that I, I've read up on these sermons, now that I've looked at this topic and let it dig in, I realized I could almost, I, the other day I was trying to think, I almost tried to figure out the timing exactly when I felt I could feel that shift in our church where I went from just like, hey, come in, and i got to go to the hospital, visit a person. That didn't happen too often because we've got a younger congregation, but, you know, once in a while, or, or uh, you had a one wedding once a year or a funeral once a year or whatever, you know. But, but all of a sudden I went to where, like, I felt like I just started like crazy. And then God turned the line on and said, yeah, you got to mobilize your people. And people started stepping in and, and, and volunteering and, and helping. And at that point, when we started doing that, you know, there's people who have to miss services from time to time because they're helping in the back with kids or they're, they're doing this or that. Um, and Jen and I, literally, in our schedule, just to connect with people, especially newer folks coming in, to connect with them, it's like when you get up to 100 or 120 people, just let me put in perspective for you. This week, I want you to call 60 people and have a meaningful conversation that's going to build a relationship with them this week. 60 people. I want you to just try it. That's not anything to make you feel bad for me. It's just that's where the church has to step up and say, hey, it's not just a one-man show here. The pastor's not here to build the relationships. It's all of us. We're a body. And so that someone doesn't feel like they're just unconnected and they're not part of the body because nobody's talking to them. Nobody's got a relationship with them. The pastor can't have a, a meaningful, in-depth relation, relationship every week because it takes weekly, really, to keep building. I mean, you meet once a month with somebody and they're just kind of an acquaintance. So you're getting the picture here that, that we're already at that point where we're hitting these shifts. It's like, it's like when you learn to drive a standard, right? I was in a group of ministers talking about this, about this very subject in our church and things. I said, you know, I started equating it like when I learned to drive a standard. It's like you're trying to figure out when do I shift so that I'm not like, er, or you slam into something, you know, or it dies on you. And so we have to figure out when is the time that we start getting more people involved. When, when are we going to, you know, as soon as we have the finances to hire another staff member. Some people say, oh, you're treating the church like a business. No, I need help every day. And so there's coming those times, you're right. When New Song Church had 40 or 50 people, and keep in mind, Jen and I have been the pastors for three and a half years, going on four years, but we've been in this church since before the first service when it was a church plant. And so I remember when the first core group of 40 people came of a mixture from other churches to help see this thing go. And, and we knew everybody personally, and we got together a lot, and we were close with them. And, we, um, you know, and we're now already at 110 to 120 uh, going from really getting to, to, to church with somebody. It's more like an acquaintance if you're not careful. It becomes a crowd, not a church. And all of a sudden, it's easier just to protect, project an image than build a relationship. It's a lot easier to walk in here and put on that everything's good in your spiritual walk, right? And that you're reading your Bible regularly and that you're praying and that you're growing spiritually. And you can walk in in a couple services during the week and have everybody fooled, right? But who's in your life that's going to say baloney? I love you enough. I want you in heaven with me and I want you to just drift off and have to see you turn the wrong way. I want to make sure you're coming with us. 
And that takes knowing that spiritually you have someone holding you accountable. Very sad to say that from time to time I hear about, and, and I'm not going to pick on non-denominational churches. You've got to hear my heart on this. But I hear people pick about denominations, how unimportant that is, how that's ridiculous, and that's man thing and everything. Let me tell you how many times I hear more than the denominational churches, non-denominational churches having moral problems and failures and all kinds of bad stuff going on. Why? Because they get only so far up the top and then there's no oversight. There's no accountability. You know, God will hold them accountable. But in the meantime, there's all kinds of damage being done, right? God wants us. It's healthy to have accountability. I am so thankful to be a part of the Assemblies of God, not because I'm just going to wave the banner of the Assemblies of God, because of all the organizations I've come to really believe in the, their mission, their vision, and how they treat the ministers, and how they, they keep me accountable, and they have all kinds of processes set up to make sure that we can be as successful as possible and then stay out of our business when, they don't, when we don't need them. They like the autonomous church. I love it, and we need it. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with a big church. So I've also been one of those that say, you know, look at the big church. Like anytime there's a big organization, that's why government is easy to pick on. No, they, they give reason to. But, but if they were not doing anything wrong, we would still pick on them. Why? Because they're an organization, not people to us. We can look outside at the, the structure and, and just call it an organization. And it becomes like it doesn't have feelings. It doesn't have struggles. You know, it should be perfect. And last year, Jen and I had the honor of being a part of Water Tower Network uh, where Pastor Brian's church brought 21 ministers, young ministers from rural America, from what he called Water Tower Towns, right? And he brought them in, and, and it was a cohort to learn together for six months. Once a month, we went down there. They put us in a nice hotel, nice meals, everything paid, just come down and treat us like royalty. And at first, I was like, you know, they really could spend some of this money. We're ministers, we understand, spend this money on reaching the homeless with it you know pastor brian was trying to teach us something though by that because if we don't ha learn how to accept god's extravagance and be a recipient of it we're less likely to give it out we're less likely to be the one who sends it out but we are part of that and and uh, uh th this church had lots of resources they had people who were funding this they had people who had done well in business said, hey, Pastor Brian, I believe in what you're doing to encourage pastors of small churches. I came from a small church, so I'm taking care of the hotel expense. Uh, Pastor Brian, I, I believe in this, so any book you want to buy for them, I'll buy all the books. You know, and, and they had people who came together and pooled their resources. And so when we say big churches are bad or we get that in mind, what we're saying is, is that the kingdom growing and success in God's kingdom is bad. Let's just keep it us four no more. That's the healthiest thing because then we just know everybody in the church. Instead of maybe the church could grow to be a bunch of small congregations in a big organization, right, or a big church. But, but this thing opened my eyes that this church was seeing people saved and they had real ministry going on and they were able to use the resources to go not only locally but nationally and globally and, and do it in big ways. They're able to accomplish a lot of things because by sheer numbers, the more people you have, there's more talent and more variety of talent and resources. And so God uses those things. Can it be bad? Yes, because people can give gifts with their name attached to it. As long as you put my name up on the screen Sunday, Pastor, I'll be glad to match any donation. You know, I mean, it can be, but we're not talking about that this morning. At North Place Church, it's a place they can release a great amount of resources. And so... Um, there's amazing things that they accomplish 
And I will tell you that if we get to that point, I'll never apologize for people getting saved, uh, for the favor of God, for growing a church, for a bigger church. But at the same time, I'm very aware that along these lines, the, the advantages, there are also some subtle disadvantages if we aren't careful. We can become a crowd instead of being a church. I'm going to, to quickly here in a minute wrap up, but I want to give you a few more things here to hold on to, and we're going to finish up some things next week on this very topic. But when we do what, when we do that, when we become a crowd set of church, we lose the ability to genuinely grow in Jesus Christ. We'll grow in numbers, but not by and spiritually, not together, not in relationship. You see a 200 to 300 member church or a 10 to 20,000 member church, they have the same problems. And let me give you a few of them here. The first one, the church can slowly become something we go to instead of something we are. It can be just something in your agenda and something you go to instead of something you are. And when we're there, it's very, very easy to not be present. It's very easy to not be engaged and plugged in when it's someplace you go instead of something you are. When you are the church, you don't want to miss anything because it's part of who you are. When you are the church, you want to be there because something may happen that is a very important and just hearing it from somebody else isn't going to have the same weight as if you were there and involved in it. And there are people and new believers, and I've said this over and over, at a baptism, when they see the whole church show up for baptism, they believe these folks are behind my decision. And this public declaration of my faith is truly public. You know, we go to church, and afterwards we're going to go to a restaurant, and, and then we're going to go to the gym tomorrow morning, and church has become a program, a place, a, a concert with a talk, a creative children's program. It can come, become all kinds of things, but it's very hard, unless you're intentional, for it to be a community. But the problem with all of this is not um, that, that we become uh, consumers who start looking at the church the way we do a restaurant or the way we do the store we shop for clothes. And we start, we start asking the question, what's in this for me? And just like driving past the mom and pop hardware store to get to the big box retail store, it's because it offers more options with greater convenience at cheaper prices. So in comparing church to a retail in our culture, we have lost any sense of brand loyalty. We quit the mom and pop shop because they are always out of what we needed the most. And Home Depot came in and they had in stock what was cheaper with five different brand options and four color patterns, so we, we keep going back to Home Depot. It's convenient, it meets my needs better, and we go home to Home Depot so often that they give us special deals, and they start calling us by a first-name basis, and the manager's so happy to see you. And I tease my mother-in-law because she goes to Walmart so much. We were at a Christmas one time at her house, and I got used to hearing the Walmart bags come in, and they live like 30-minute drive from the store, so I'd hear them, you know, and, you know, I, I'm ornery, and I've toned, toned down a lot because I've learned you want to keep your mother-in-law happy, right? So if you want to keep your wife happy, you want to keep your mother-in-law happy. So I quit teasing, but, but I couldn't resist. And, you know, I always have that, that one little thing, and she'd come in, and I just before I knew it, and I was working at Walmart home office time, and I said, hey, uh, Wayneetta, uh, the Walmart store manager called. He said, uh, wondering where you've been. Their, their uh, stock is going down. <laughs> and, of course, I won't tell you what she said. It, it, it was Christian, but it was not nice. Um, <laughs> but let me tell you something home depot thinks they got you right they've got you because you you are there all the time and everything but guess what happens to home depot when lowe's moves in a little closer to you and they send you those coupons for grand opening and you gotta see maybe they have the bigger better thing for a lot cheaper right 
I just got to go see. And then they hook you. And then Home Depot's crying over here because they lost their favorite guy, right? And we treat church like that, like consumers. Well, you know, I don't like this. I don't like, um, I don't like the music. I don't like the lights. I don't like the design or the, something the preacher said. And boom, like that, we leave. We don't become part of the solution or, or to see the improvements or be a part of it or getting in, engaged and integrated. We're just out of there. Try to find the bigger, better box, right? It's the culture we're living in. And every culture of all, all time, whether it's my, my great-grandfather's, which I never got to know, his generation or my generation, each one of us is a product of a fallen world, and all of us, every generation, has its own cultural issues. And these now, you know, there's so many issues with that. And I'm going to jump ahead. I may come back to this next week and, and, and give you this example again. But in, in researching this sermon, I came across an example that a preacher had said that this man in the church came to him complaining, saying, Pastor, I found somebody in need and I brought him to the church. You weren't there. And I, I told him what he needed and I left and they never helped him. And I just, I just, I'm so upset about that that they never helped that guy that was in need. And the pastor said, I am so sorry. I, I am deeply, I am sincerely, I'm sorry. I said, I said, the church has failed. I said, you know, we, we've got folks that, that it, was, it was their responsibility to do that, and they dropped the ball. And I'm really sorry, and I, I, I just, I want you to know that, that I hope this doesn't happen again. And the man said, well, I want to know, who was it then? Who was, whose responsibility was it? He wanted a name, and he kept pressing the pastor. Tell me who it was. He needs to be held accountable. That person needs to know that they failed this person in need. And the pastor said, it was you. You're just as much of this body as someone on full-time staff. And apparently God thought it was important that you knew the need before anybody else. And you passed it off. Why didn't you take care of him? Why track him all the way over the church? And you know, here's the problem that we complain about as conservative Christians on our political views. We'll complain about a society who wants to live off the government, right? But we'll do the same thing in the church. Send them to the organization. Let the organization take care of their needs. The organization should have all this stuff to take care of everybody. But, but what, what did Jesus talk about? And we'll get into this more next week. When he went into the one another's. It wasn't the church needs to do this for the others. It was the one another's. That we are the church and we are to take care of those needs. Oh, pastor, but I don't have any money. Well, there are times when the church may step in. You know, God's blessed. We've got excess. But I'm telling you about more the attitude and the habit of everybody thinking it's the church as the organization take care of it. I kind of, and I don't mean this to be disrespectful, I laugh because we have a lot of people come and ask for money from the church consistently that never step foot through the door other than during the week to ask or to call and ask. And you know, there's sometimes we help folks and there's times I call the church and find out that's their job is to try to, you know, they're not doing bad. They, that's just the way they get their paycheck. And there will always be those kind of situations, but I, I, I really got confused when I had another church call me and say hey we got someone that has some needs and um you know we we've got a food bank and all and we've got stuff here but I just thought you know they live closer to you we just connect them with you and maybe you could be blessed by having them part of your congregation well sure I'd love to have them in our congregation but my thought was you got stuff sitting there why didn't you help them so they need to be hungry until I can make contact with them you know and help them out and I, I hate to use that example because I you know gonna figure out it's a local church or area but it just bothered me that that they, that, you know, it's like, a, oh, hey, I'm, I'm giving you somebody for your congregation. Well, that's great. We'll, we'll welcome anybody. Uh, atheists, it don't matter. 
we'll love them. Jesus loved me, I'll love them. But, but why didn't you help them? They had to wait. We don't have a food bank. We're trying to work towards that, but we don't have a space for it. But if it was a genuine need, I can go down to the grocery store and I can get them something. I can have a mobile food bank in about two, three minutes if they go with me, you know? I, I, I guess I don't want to try uh, uh, chase rabbits here, but, but we have to understand that, that some of these issues that the church has can be, can be a problem. And we'll get more into this next week because I want to give you, I don't want to just talk about the problems, but I want to uh, look at solutions. Uh, and I'll give you a little taste of this. We're going to look at um, how the church needs to be, everybody needs to be genuinely known, lovingly supported, and honestly challenged. There are answers for how we can be a community and not just a crowd. But I'm telling you, if we ignore this or we treat it just like, oh, that was a pretty good sermon, Pastor, and, and there's no action after this, we may add to our numbers, but you're not going to like the results. We may build a building and we may have more people and you may have a great worship service and it's a place you go, not a place you are, but you're missing something very valuable that Jesus set up. It's to have a community of believers who are in your life who help, help you to grow. You don't have to wait till heaven to learn more about God. You don't have to wait till heaven to have a more mature relationship with Him. And to come to a place where it don't matter what everybody else is doing in the service, you're doing a dance because the joy of the Lord is your strength, right? You've been built up, prepared, equipped, and sent out, and numbers are added to us daily. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that in a morning that was a train wreck for my uh, sermon notes, Lord, I thank you that you are faithful and you will, will take and, and equip and help us, Lord, even our times of weakness. Lord, even when things are our fault, you step in for the benefit of the church and for the people. Lord, I just pray right now that you will take this word, bury in our heart. Lord, let it become action. Not next week, not uh, next month, but tomorrow, today. Lord, as we step out, that we begin to think, hey, I can call these folks in the church I can call a couple of them once a week. I can begin with something. I can do something to make sure that we are becoming a community and not just a crowd. With every head bowed and eye closed, I, I, I wouldn't be doing right if I didn't give an opportunity. If there's someone here today and you're saying, I don't have a relationship with God. I know I may know something about Him. I may think that I've known Him before, but this morning there's something in this service, maybe during the worship or during the message that says, I don't have the kind of relationship you're talking about. And I want that. I want something vibrant. I want something that, that carries me through the trials of life. And I want to know without a shadow of a doubt that if I die today, that I am present with the Lord in eternity where there's no more tears. If that's you and you want me to pray for you, I want you to just raise your hand quickly and I, I want to pray for you and then and put it back down. Amen. That means if if we've all really sold that in our heart, then we're all going to see each other again one day. You can look up. I love y'all. Um, 